What's up, Edgerton? It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Chris, part of the teaching team here. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that today, uh, man, we're starting a three-week series on the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to say, hey, I want, I want to kind of use this time to kind of move us further into who the Spirit's called us to be, a further understanding of what the Spirit's called us into and, and where we come from. And so we're going to start and we're going to end um, somewhere, hopefully around tongues and, and baptism of the Holy Spirit and the things that kind of make us go, hey, what's really going on here? And so for us to get moving this morning, what I, what I want to walk into is like, like how this story um, in Acts 2 affects you and I. And so I'm going to kind of just kind of lean into that for just a second on how Acts 2 affects you and I. And so about 30 years ago, um, there was about four to five people. And, and these adults decided that, hey, they, they wanted to start meeting together inside um, of their house. And so what they did was they said, well, we'll just use the garage. And so they, every Sunday they would get up and they would get their brooms out and they would, they would sweep out the garage and then they would meet in there, four to five of them. And after it was done, they would put the chairs up, they would pull cars back into the garage and, and that's how they would move. And they did this for several years. All right. And, and as this thing began to go, like they, they found themselves not growing very well. And so they somehow, through the, through the line, they, they met up with another church in town called Jones Road Baptist Church. Now, Jones Road Baptist Church was kind of doing the same thing. They had a small um, building. They were struggling. And, and they talked to these guys who had started this little church in the garage and said, hey, well, why don't we join forces here? And so they, they joined forces. And, and for the next few years, they would just kind of bump along as Jones Road Baptist Church is trying to make this thing work. Fast forward about eight, nine years, they're, they're still struggling along. And for whatever reason, in the early 90s, the thing began to take off, like the church began to grow. Somewhere along the line, they read this book called Purpose Driven Life. And, and next thing you know, they're reading Purpose Driven Church and the church begins to really move. Like the things that they'd done for the last 20 years, they decided to shift and do something different. And the Lord began to bless that. Like the spirit began to move and the church began to gain traction. The church would shift its name to Southside Baptist Church somewhere in the mid 90s and it would continue to move. Growing up in this, like, like we came into this, this area, me and my wife came into this area probably like in, in the mid-90s, like 1995, 96, and, and we weren't together. But, but this girl named Rachel started attending this church. This girl, she, she came to Christ at a college like when she was like 21, and so she knew what it was like to see a church that was alive. And so she stepped a foot into this church, and she realized that the Spirit was alive and well in there. And so she began to make this her church home. And so as she began to grow in her faith, like she would have some bumps along the road here and there. But one day she would meet this guy. And as she met this guy who, who was a staunch, um, not part of that faith, and who was really just chasing the world, chasing money, heart was hard. She invited him to come to this church with her. And as he went there, like, because his heart was so hard, if you were to ask him today what, what he thought about that, he would tell you that he doesn't remember any particular sermon. But as he went through it, he understood that, man, there was a chasm between him and the world and that his heart was growing harder and harder. 
And as the story would play out, somewhere along the line, he, he would get a hold of a disc, what they call a WOW CD, which would make itself into a carousel disc player. Like if you're familiar with those, I don't even know if those things are still around, but he was in a carousel disc player. And one day on a Saturday afternoon, as he's listening to Metallica and he's painting a bedroom, the CD ends, the carousel shifts, and the WOW CD goes in. And through the story of one of the songs on that CD, that guy would break in his bedroom. Like, and everything would shift for him. He wouldn't know what happened to him. Like, there would be no language for him. Like, he wouldn't know anything from left to right. He would just know that in an instant, like, everything in his world shifted. Like, everything changed. And so he would begin to get involved in the local church and begin to learn language, begin to understand who he was, what had happened to him, and how he was called to play a role in the story of the Lord. And as this thing would go on, he would play, take part in a church that would launch again in 2002. So that church, Southside, would multiply into another church in 2002. As that church bumped along in 2010, that church would multiply again and it would launch a second campus in another town that was 30 minutes away. On October 10th, 2010, it would launch that campus called Crossroads. And by the end of that year, they would see 30 people come to know their Savior. People from alternative lifestyles, people who had been in prison, like would experience the power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ and would start fresh. Six months later, that church would send out people to multiply again. And in 2012, New City Church would start from some of the people that were in the church of Crossroads. 2012, New City Church launches. This thing begins to move. People begin to come to know their Savior. Like People begin to get fired about who Christ is and how the, their life plays into that. And in 2015, they would launch another campus, U. Edgerton, and you would be launched. And you would see these new people come to faith. And some of you would be drawn back to the faith. And some of you would be drawn into the faith. And some of you would simply just say yes to the Lord. And some of you, even today, are still going, is this right? Like you're still trying to figure out, man, is the Lord worth your life? And so I say all this to say to you is that your story started 40 years ago with four or five people sitting in a garage. But that's not really where your story started. Like your story started even further back than that because somewhere along to get those four or five people in that garage, somebody taught those four or five people what it was like to follow, the G follow Jesus. Like somewhere along the line, the Spirit got involved in their life to begin to move them to say, you know what, we're going to start a church in our garage. And so the story goes from the garage to Jones Road, to Southside, to Crossroads, to New City, to New City Edgerton, to whatever comes next. And all of this is part of your story. Like you can track your story back to somewhere where somebody, the Spirit, drew in and caused change, caused something to move. And I will tell you this, that all of the stories started on one particular day. Like had what not happened in Acts chapter 2 happened, you wouldn't be here. Like you wouldn't be around. Like I wouldn't be here. Like the story of the Spirit wooing us in started 
in Acts chapter 2 and continues to this day, and you're a part of it. Like, it's your story. Like, when I came to Christ, what I realized about a year, two years later, is that the Spirit had been wooing me the entire time. Like, no matter what I had done, the Spirit was chasing me down as hard as my heart could be because the Spirit was causing me to come into repentance. And as this story played out, man, like here I stand. And as your story plays out, here you stand. And the reason that we all stand is because of what played out in Acts chapter 2. And so what I want to do is I want to lay the groundwork of how your story began and why it's important to you. And so we're going to start in the first verse and we're going to kind of work our way through. But understand this clearly, that this is your story. This is where you came from. And the reason that you're playing a part in it is because of what happened here. And the reason that you will continue to play in it is because of what's still happening here. Does this make sense? And so we're just going to start here. We're going to move into verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to ask the Lord to come and be with us. And so, Father, if you're, you're in control of all things, Lord. Like this story is a clear picture of how you're in charge of all things. And so, Lord, I would ask you to let me communicate this clearly. That people would understand that they are part of this story. That this is their home. This is what they're created to do. This is what they're called to do. This is what's happening inside of them. And all of this because of this day. Without this day, Lord, there is nothing. And so, Jesus, we praise your name for causing this. Let your word seep into our hearts. Man, let it mold us into who and what we are. And everyone in this house said, Amen. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And so before we can actually start in this verse, we need to kind of back up. And so like if you're familiar with this, this is 10 days after Jesus has gone to heaven. And so let, let's just go there for a second. So Jesus comes and he's like, listen, it's time for me to go. Like, if I don't go, then man, things aren't going to play out like they should. In fact, it's better that I do go so that the comfort of the spirit will come because he'll be able to do even greater things than what I've done. And so if you think through that, you're like, man, if you had the option of Jesus sitting right beside you for the rest of your life, or you had the spirit, which one would you choose? Like in my mind, I was like, man, I want Jesus right here. Like I want him talking with me, convening with me, like walking back and forth, like helping me out. Like I want him, not necessarily the spirit, but Jesus says clearly to them, he says, listen, here's the deal. I've got to go. And it's better that I go. It's better that I go. And so what plays out next is that Jesus goes to heaven before he does. He says, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I, I own everything. I, I own every tree. I own every ant. I own every human. I own every body of water. I own all things. Like I have dominion over the demons that walk this place. Like I own it all. And because I have that power, I'm telling you to go and make disciples of all nations. 
Now, when we hear this, like what we think of is making converts, like me standing on a podium, me preaching the gospel and people coming to know Christ. But as I can clearly tell you, that's not the story. It's the spirit that draws men in, not you, not me. It's the spirit that causes men and women to be convicted of their sin and turn from that. Not you, not me. And so conversion is never on us. But what is on us is making disciples. And so let me kind of give you an example of this. All right. So like when I came to Christ, when I, when I fully accepted him as my savior, I had no language for anything. Like I didn't know that I was born again. I didn't know what the spirit had done in my life. I had no knowledge of this, like nothing. And, and, and as I'm doing this, I join a small group. Now there's a good friend of mine named Greg Taylor, who I saw about three or four weeks ago. Now, when I came to Christ, it's been about 15 years, and Greg Taylor was in there with me. And, and Greg Taylor said, hey, he was, you know, I don't remember much about the small group. He said, but I remember this. Like, I, I remember you going off for about an hour of how you disagreed with the prodigal son being given back everything that he got, that he messed up. Like, you disagreed with it. Like, you went on for an hour about how that's wrong, how you would never have done that, how, how, how that's just evil. Like, the prodigal son didn't deserve any of that. Like, that's how this thing works. Like, like, you would have never done that. Like, that's all I remember. And I'm thinking to myself going, oh, my. Oh, my. Like, it, it sat in my soul. And so the next time I'm mowing the lawn, like, this thing is just on me. Like, it's just leaning in me. And I began to preach the gospel to myself so loud that my wife came out while I was on the lawnmower and said, you have got to be quiet because you're being too loud. And here's what I was preaching to myself. I am the prodigal son. Like, that's me. Like, I needed someone in my life at that point to say, Chris, shut up and sit down because you are the prodigal son. Like, think clearly, Chris, about what you did. Like there was a time in ninth grade that I walked in my driveway and I gave the Lord the bird simply because it was going to rain out a hayride. And that's the tip of the iceberg. Like I was the prodigal son. Like I was the one who deserved nothing, but the Lord gave it back. Like he welcomed me even in that moment. And I think to myself, I'm like, who did I screw up? Because sometimes I have a tendency to get pretty passionate about stuff that I don't know is true. Because there was no parent in the room telling me to sit down and shut up and showing me how I am the prodigal son. And so the Lord's clear. He's like, listen, I make them. I regenerate their soul like I send the spirit ahead and it regenerates who they are. It's your job to grow them up at the same time that you're growing, like to walk with them. And so here's what plays out. So the apostles are They have this picture in their mind, but they don't know exactly how to do it. And he says, man, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Like, just wait. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they sit there. Day one, nothing happens. Day two, nothing happens. Day three, nothing happens. Day four, nothing happens. Day five, nothing happens. And by this time you're going, okay, what's the deal? Like, I I know there's something more, but nothing's happening. Day six, nothing happens. Day seven, nothing happens. Day eight, nothing happens. Day nine, nothing happens. And so they find themselves stuck. Like, have you ever been just stuck there? Like, you know there's something more, but you just don't know how to get there. 
And so can I encourage you to do exactly what they did in chapter 1? It said they recognized their brokenness and they prayed together. It says in that they were all together in one accord. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now they're at day 10, all right? So they're at day 10 from Jesus saying, All authority has been given to me. You're going to go make disciples. And they don't know how. They don't know the tra- strategy. And here they sit. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, there they were, all together in one place. Now, let's unpack this text. We know from chapter 1 that there was about 120 of them in this place. Now, when it says that they were all together, that's translated into that they were all of one accord, meaning that their hearts were unified. There was no silos between them. Like, they were together as one, with each other, for each other. And they just so happened to be there on the day of Pentecost. Now let's talk about Pentecost. Some of you guys may not understand this story. Pentecost is like a, a, is a feast day. It's like a, a joyful celebration. All right? The one prior to this was Passover. And here we find ourselves in Pentecost. Now, why are they celebrating Pentecost? Like, what's, what's the joy of Pentecost? And so for years, for centuries, every year, 50 days after Passover, they would come together in the city of Jerusalem and they would celebrate this day. They did it for two reasons. Number one, they would, ce- they would celebrate the fact that the harvest had begun. And so they would harvest the first bundle of wheat and they would give it as an offering to the Lord, saying, thank you for this. Historically, this was also the day that the Pentecost was also known as the joy of the law. But they celebrated the day that Mount Sinai happened, that the day that the Lord gave them the law. And so they're celebrating these two things on this day. It was a large festival. Historically, many people would travel to Jerusalem for this day. And here's the other side. Like if you read about this in the Old Testament, the priests were instructed to take two loaves of bread and wave them before the Lord. Now you say to me, Chris, that's weird. And I'm saying, I know. Like that's probably a weird thing to be waving bread before the Lord for centuries, year after year. And I would say, why did they do that? Why did they do that? And so we travel down just a little further and it says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house they were sitting in. Now let's think through this. Like some of you have heard this text a thousand times, but let's lean into this. It says, suddenly, like here's what we're doing this week. Right? Like we have asked the band not to have a song list. You want to know why? It's because for every week we have this thing called a planning center. And what happens in that planning center is that we plan out every event and we do that under the guise that the Spirit is in the planning. And I would say to us, always, always in the planning because when I read the text, here's what I read, verse 2 suddenly, suddenly. And so what we've asked the band to do is we've said, hey, don't make a playlist. Like however the Lord leads you, like if if you want to interrupt this text, if you want to interrupt at any point, let the band begin to play. Let it make a joyful noise to the Lord because the Spirit surely can't always be in the planning if we read in the text that suddenly He appears. 
Like suddenly out of nowhere, he shows up and it says that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting in. Now let's think through this for just a second. Suddenly, a blowing wind comes into the earth, comes into the house. Now think through this, like there's no New Testament here. So the minute that they hear this rushing wind, this blowing wind, what do they think about? Like we've talked about this, like the way that they were taught was to remas, meaning that their hearts were full of Scripture so that whenever they saw something, their minds and their hearts were remembered back to what Scripture said about this. So the minute that they hear a blowing wind, what do you think of? Genesis 1, where the Spirit of the living God was blowing over the waters. Genesis 2, when the Spirit of the, of the living God blew air into the nostrils of Adam. Ezekiel 32, when the Spirit of the living God blew over the dry bones and they came alive. In John chapter 3, when Jesus says, the Spirit of the living God is like wind. You have no idea where it comes or where it goes, but you cannot deny that it's there. And so immediately they recognize, man, the Spirit is here. Says So suddenly there a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house they were sitting in. And so what we learn from this is that the spirit of the living God comes upon people suddenly, like all of a sudden, like it just comes on you. Like this is an attribute of who he is. Like sometimes there's no planning involved. And so as we travel down, it says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, what is playing out here? Like, I want to I push on you for just a second. Like, I've been reading several books about what happens when the Spirit comes upon you. And in all the cases that I've read, like 95% of them, they say, Lexan, when the Spirit comes upon you, the immediate thing that happens is you begin to speak in different languages. Like that's like the telltale story in about 95% of them. And so I just kind of want to lean into that and say, man, is that true? Like, is that an accurate picture of what's playing out here? And so when I read this, it says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, the first thing I want to lean into is like when that word says came to rest, it's literally translated came to sit with. Like came to sit with. Like prior to this moment, you never see this. Like you can read every story in the Old Testament and you're never going to see the old, in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came to sit with their people. Like what you will see is that at appointed times on appointed people for appointed circumstances that the Spirit would come on them, that they would prophesy, that they would become stronger. But there was never a promise anywhere in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit himself would come and sit with them for an extended period of time, for like the length of eternity. Like there was never that promise until you read it in verse 3. They seemed They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to sit with and in them. Like it's the first time that you see this. The Spirit coming to make His home with people. Now let's talk about the first thing that plays out. It says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and landed on them. Now what's the significance of the fire landing on them? 
So let's think through this. Like in order to understand what that means, it means that we've got to understand what they understood that it to mean. Think about two things. Like what did they use fire for? What did they use fire for? Like anytime that you see fire in the Old Testament, what it was used for was to be sanctifying, was to make pure, was to make holy, was to mold gold, was to melt it and let the impurities come to it so they could wipe off the things that no longer matter. And it was just the pure substance that was left. And so what you watch playing here is the first thing the Spirit does is He comes and He makes them pure. Like the evidence that the Spirit has come into your life first and foremost is not the gift of tongues, but the fact that you've been made pure. Like ask anyone that story. Like when the Spirit comes and regenerates your soul, the first evidence that He's alive and well in you is that you've been made pure. Ask anyone who's had this happen to them. Like in my life, like when the Spirit came and got a hold of me in my bedroom on October 30th, 1999, the first thing that went was sin. Like I can't explain to you how this happens. Like for one moment, I'm this way. I'm hard. My heart is like a stone. And in a moment's thing, all of the trajectory of my life has been shifted to the right. Like I see everything new and this heart of stone, I begin to weep over the things of my life. And I begin to apologize to the Lord for the things that I'd done to him. Like the evidence was not that I began to speak in tongues, but that I was sorrowful for who I was and that he had made me pure and right and holy. And those were the things that I wept over. People would say to me when I first started preaching the gospel, they would to Chris, like, I think you use too many churchy terms and that you cry a little bit too much. And I would say to them now, sir, I can't understand why you don't cry more. Because in the drop of a hat, suddenly, in the flash of a light, my life was traveling one way and it shifted and traveled the others. Like my story, your story is this story. It's what the Spirit does. Evidenced by the fire. What was it that Jesus said to his people? What was it that Jesus said when John was trying to baptize him? What was it that John said about Jesus? John says, listen, here he is. He's a man whose sin as I am not fit to tie. He's like, although I baptize with water, the Lord himself will baptize you with what? Fire. Like this is the picture that plays out. Like when the Lord gets a hold of you, when the Spirit comes and makes his home, you get baptized with fire, a picture that you are being purified. Like everything that is no longer needed in your life is going to rise to the top and be scraped off so that you will be what? A living sacrifice. And so he travels down and he says this. He says, verse four, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, here's the evidence of why people who speak in tongues say that the evidence that you've been filled with the Spirit is that you automatically begin to speak in tongues. Now, here's the deal. When you take verse 4 at its word there, I would agree with you. But we know that we can't ever take one verse and put our lives into it. 
Now, I am not speaking against the gift of tongues. I have preached on this. I believe in them. We will talk through them. In fact, as we begin to unpack more and more of the Holy Spirit, I want to get to baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to get to speaking in tongues. I want to get to the first and second blessings, things that people have in their hearts but don't know what to do with. I want to talk about those things scripturally as we begin to move. But let me explain to you this. There is something much bigger playing out here than the tongues. The tongues were needed as part of the story to play out what's playing out, but they are not the story. You're like, Chris, what do you mean? Well, well, let's talk through this. The first thing we need to understand is verse four, when it says all of them means all of them. Like in our heads, we assume that this is just the 12, but we just talked about how there's 120 of them. There's 120 people in the room and the text says all of them and how that's translated means all of them. So now you have 120 people filled with the Spirit, not just the 12, but all 120 filled with the Spirit and now they're all speaking in tongues. Now the hard thing to know about tongues is that wherever it's used, it uses the same word, Glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, and it can be translated both ways. It can be translated that you hear the voice in your own native language or that it's a native language to heaven itself. It's the same word. And so when you get into 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, it's the same word. And so what's playing out here is clearly there's evidence that these guys are hearing it in their own native language. But for you and I to assume that all 120 people were speaking in someone's native language, I think is to assume too much. It's to assume too much. And so you got 120 people here prophesying and talking about the works of God, some of which, maybe even the majority of which, are speaking in native languages to the planet Earth. And this is what plays out. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Let's think through that. What it just said was that they were staying in Jerusalem, devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Now when you read this, you can't put it into your context. Like you can't say, well, that means the entire world had people there. That's not what it means. But it means that wherever there was a Jew, when whatever nation he was from, he was represented there. So wherever the Jews had been dispersed, like if you're familiar with the dispersal, no time to talk through that, but the Jews had been dispersed all over the place. And wherever country they found themselves in, one, at least one Jew, a devout one from that country was represented in Jerusalem today. How does that happen? Who orchestrates that moment so that on this day, on this time, that there's at least one representative, one devout Jew from every nation under heaven? Who orchestrates that? But see, there's something much more playing out here than just the gift of tongues. 